really appreciate how I've come to understand that truth comes from many sources and that when it's truth, it harmonizes with other truths we know. And I believe that my first testimony was of agency. And of course, I learned that more and more, the, you know, the more experience I've had in this life that because we all have our agency and we interact with each other and we bump up against each other, that we have the power to get frustrated and upset by it, or we also have the ability to honor it in others and then use our agency to choose intentionally and actively choose light and goodness in our within our own selves. It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall, and uh, don't do many episodes like this. Normally, it's just a one-on-one. Today, it is one-on-two. I am joined by Jeff and Kathy Tykert. Thank you for being here on the show, you guys. And thank you for having us. And you hear the last name Tykert, and you instantly, if you're any sort of Latter-day Saint, you go, that has to be some sort of relation to Minerva Tykert. So let's start there. What's the relation, Jeff? Uh, Minerva is my great-grandmother, and she died when I was maybe nine years old, and so I, I do have some vivid memories of her, um, you know, as a relatively young child. And so some people who don't know who Minerva Tykert are are like, great, it's this person's great-grandma. Why are we talking about this person's <laughs> great-grandma? Who, who, how do you explain her to people? Well, I mean, she was one of the first, if not the first, really accomplished Latter-day Saint artist, uh, painter. Um, she had probably the best art education available in the United States in her time. And it was unusual, of course, for a woman to, to have that much education in that period of our history. Um, so I think those are a, a, a couple of things. She She's known for having painted the world room in the Manti temple. Uh, that was kind of her big masterpiece, but also you'll find her work in almost every temple, if not every temple in the church, uh, hanging on the walls. You know, there's the one of Christ with the little black lamb or Christ in the red robe. And, and there are others as well. Her queen Esther painting is in many of the bride's rooms. So it, it just that alone in and of itself being that sort of artistic pioneer for many is I think where they, they find a tremendous amount of um, like inspiration um, for, from her, from her life. Um, but, but then you, you complement it certainly with the time and the investment that the church had in her as an individual within um, your family. How, how is she respected or how, how are her stories told and and maybe could you share a, one or two of those that might be kind of pass me downs uh, you know i would actually just like to insert here that when jeff and i met our first date uh-huh. i hadn't quite put together his last name in like visually i'm more of an auditory learner uh-huh. and when i heard him say his name out loud i asked that question okay and then when i found out there was relation i was so excited because i'd spent many years recovering from divorce in the temple, staring at those paintings. And it was a big part of my healing process. And one of the reasons I knew who she was is because auditorily, Mm -hmm. uh, one of the few people that remained close to me from my first husband's family 
went to the temple and she pointed out one of her paintings and said it verbally. And uh, she said, oh, I just love her work. And then it, I just started seeing it everywhere. And it it really spoke to me personally. So mm. that became a big topic of conversation about halfway through our first date. Well, you go right for it, huh? <laughs> well, so I want to get back to that. So Kathy, do not let me forget that I want to ask all around that. But but I would be curious to know, um, you know, when you when you start to talk into great grandparents, I know my great grandparents' names and I know, you know, what, she was a stenographer and, you know, that she took notes for, you know, my great grandpa who owned a car dealership. Like I can tell you some of those very basic things, but I would imagine someone who has been studied, respected, who pioneered so many of these things and is so um, worldly known, ha- has a tremendous and rich history within your family. I'd love I'd love to unlock a little bit of that. Yeah, well, I mean, she was a colorful character for sure. I mean, she homesteaded in the uh, Snake River bottoms in Idaho, sleeping on a pistol every night. <laughs> she uh, She did Indian rope dances on the streets of New York City to... Uh, helped put herself through art school where she studied painting. I'm not sure I know what that is. What's an Indian rope dance? I I don't know exactly. It was some sort of Indian dance that involved a lasso rope or something, I guess. Okay. Um, I'll be YouTube searching that later. She wore an Indian headdress the rest of her life. Yeah, she wore an Indian headband always. I never saw her without one. And apparently she used to say that her headband and her bracelets... Uh, were symbols of her slavery. (laughs) She, uh, she would, she, she was very politically minded and she would stand up in fast and testimony meeting and get political and she would go (laughs) on and on with conspiracy theories or whatever. And, uh, and finally, uh, my great grandfather who was in the bishopric would stand up uh, or would, you know, come up behind her and she would, you would hear her say, well, Herman's pulling on my coattail. And she would just <laughs> sit down without an amen or anything. Not angrily. She, sure. she, they kind of had an understanding, I guess, that she knew she could be long-winded. And so <laughs> she relied on him to rein that in a little bit. Um, and and the, these are obviously stories that have kind of been second and third hand told to you. You said that in your nine years of age when she passed, that you had a couple of memories of her. I would be curious to know what in your interactions with her at such a young and tender age, what what were those things that you recall? The story you told me on our first date. Oh yeah. There's a couple of things I'll say. One is just in general, I remember lots of times uh, being in her home and her husband lived longer than she did. He I think was 96 when he died and I was 19 years old at the time. So, so I got to know him pretty well. Um, and, and he was alone for a number of years at the end of his life because she had died quite a bit before him, but Wait, uh, let me anyway. interject real quick. Was it natural? How did, did she pass of, of something? Yeah, it was, I mean, it, it, and she was old. I mean, she was probably 88 or something like that. Okay. okay. Um, but yeah, she would walk us around her house cause she had paintings hanging up all over the place. Uh, sometimes she'd have something up that she was working on. And I remember thinking it was tedious to have to walk around with my great grandmother and look at her artwork. Hmm. And of course, now I would love to ask her questions about various pieces that she produced, but 
at the at age five or six or seven or you know on through nine I didn't quite have the vision of that um another funny story uh when I was just little like a toddler she bought a teddy bear for me at a church bazaar mm-hmm. and somebody had made it at home but it was as big as I was at the time probably wow um but I guess she liked it enough to buy it for me but she she it bothered her that the eyes were not where they would be on a real bear. <laughs> so she didn't want them up on the forehead. She wanted them down by the snout. And instead of, um, you know, like carefully cutting the threads or something, she ripped those eyes out and <laughs> re-sewed them on where she thought they went. And so my teddy bear, the whole time I was a kid, had these two holes in its forehead. <laughs> it's not artistically proportionate. I can't stand behind this. I love that. I love that. That was the first date story. Nice. So so now I want to pivot to what you were talking about. Uh, it, to the extent that you're willing, you know, uh, I think that it's a touch point that affects a lot of people who listen to the cultural hall that they've either been through a breakup or through a divorce or have had some sort of trauma of which they've they've needed to heal from and they've sought the solace and the, and the help from the Lord. Like talk, talk to me about how that intersects with the paintings and, and, and the sort of connection that you have to Minerva before you even know Jeff. So the black sheet painting is the first one that was pointed out. So I just started noticing and I went to the temple a lot. That was the one place I could feel peace in a world full of turmoil and chaos as we were trying to figure out custody and all the divorce stuff and the co-parenting and just the icky relational like garbage that just kept coming up and triggering trauma. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it was just a lot to deal with. And so I found solace in the temple and for a while it was the black sheet painting. I just kept seeing it every time I I kind of temple hop because we were from Utah. And so Mm -hmm. we have lots of temples around and I really like to just go to visit different temples. So it was like, the thing I like to do as a single, a newly single mom. I, I would be curious before we step away from that, wh- what do you think the value is or what's attractive to you about being able to temple hop? Because you know there's a certain group of the audience that's like, must be nice, Kathy. But <laughs> but but to that point, I know lots of people that, you know, who live around a bunch that they enjoy not just going to the same temple over and over again. What is it about that for you? Well, there's a certain spirit at every temple. And I think sometimes that continuity is brings some peace, like mm-hmm. recognizing that they're all the same in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just knowing, but there's different architecture, there's different, uh, dec- there's different uh, character, I guess uh, you yeah. should say uh, of the buildings. And so that I think just shakes things up a bit. Um, I would say, in my case, there I we were actually I was actually married again, and um, so first time in the Bountiful Temple, second time in the Brigham City Temple, mm-hmm. and that so my first marriage was like fourteen years, and second marriage was a year and a half. Yeah. Um, and I I remember when I would visit those temples in particular, I would feel a sense of desire to heal from those marriages and divorces and losses and, and, and try to figure out how I can show up better in relationships and in life. And I remember sitting in this, the bridal rooms Mm -hmm. and just looking, staring at the queen Esther painting. And then that one started speaking to me a lot. 
And eventually I was like, well, I better know her story. I don't want to just look at this painting. I want to know Queen Esther's story. So I, I sat in the, the celestial room. I think it was back at the Bountiful Temple, but in with the Brigham City, it was actually very rare to even be able to go back into the bridal room if you weren't a bride, mm -hmm. but I, it just, I was just blessed with the opportunity and I think there was a reason for it. And anyway, but I ended up reading all of Queen Esther at the temple one day and being really impressed with the story itself and uh, being inspired by it because she was, she was a force to be reckoned with and um, someone that I, I came to admire and as well as Minerva. So yeah. That um, and then the Christ in the red robe, of course, that's just a classic, and that's usually really large and um, placed and somewhere really obvious in the temple for everyone mm -hmm. to see. The the model for Queen Esther, incidentally, just a little flavor, uh, was a friend and a neighbor of Herman and Minerva Teichert named Margaret Curtis. Um, and I don't remember if she ended up with the original, but there was some connection like that anyway. She used her as a model on a few things. Well, and it's fun because we didn't realize. So when he moved in, it was like Christmas morning. Like, I mean, all these paintings <laughs> of, of Minerva's that, I mean, we don't have, you know, much of any originals or anything, but, you know, even just the prints and nice frames that he'd gathered through the years, it was awesome to just be like, adorning my home with her art um I'd already had a couple pieces I guess we have some duplicates now but um yeah so at least one of them I gave you yeah yeah, yeah. but anyway um I was oh we found it interesting that okay so this is a like funny fun little tidbit so that you know how they say four seasons in a road trip is how you should date before you get married. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're not a big fan of formulas. We think people should follow the spirit and everybody's going to be different. But sure. we ended up with eight seasons and a plane trip. Uh -huh. We went to Africa uh, as kind of a pre-honeymoon to see if we'd get along with each other 24-7 for 10 days. <laughs> and to visit my sister who had just gotten married to an Ethiopian man. Uh-huh. And uh, Jeff helped with the legal paperwork on that end. And we ended up getting engaged on a safari, chasing down some wild zebras. Well, well, well. <laughs> I, I have to ask you, though, did you do that? Did you engage in the Africa trip very consciously being like, we are going on this trip to see if we can yes. handle each other 24-7 for 10 plus days? Oh, yeah, or we was talked that about just, that. Really? Yeah. And at that point, we'd had almost eight seasons. So we knew each other well, but uh -huh. we hadn't dated for a year. And so, and so this was the start of us dating again. And we're like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, let's do this. And let's jump in and see if, if we really want to do this. And it turns out we did. And uh, anyway, what I, what I was actually going to get to was that on the trip, we bought the, our engagement rings and we mm -hmm. bought celebratory dress for me and a tie for him. And we got home and the dress looks actually quite a lot like Queen Esther's dress. Huh. So I have to ask, too, um, because I feel like uh, as faithful people, as people who um, who believe in God and that he directs us and those kind of things. Do, do you feel like you sort of ascribed that a little bit when you found out that he was a Tykert and that the Tykert had played so much of a role in your healing? Were you like, OK, God, I'm I'm 
paying particular attention to this or were you like what a fun coincidence that you know may or may not mean something oh i was definitely paying particular attention to this and even during our year of friendship uh-huh. he invited me to her exhibit at byu because uh, this was in 2017 that that her ex- her exhibit was there and they had a f- big family party at the very end of it mm-hmm. and i got to be like a guest and that was so awesome. And I think we'd went once when we were dating and then once again, then as friends. Right. Yes. And I just remember thinking, I'm, you know, whether we work out or not, like, I'm just so glad that I know these people. Like, I'm just so blessed in my dating journey to have gotten to know her family. And now I get to have her name, which is even better. <laughs> but yeah, no, I was definitely paying attention. I want to take a break real quick. When we come back, I want to pick it right back up there, uh, sort of with the family reunion and what the Tykert family name means. I'll tell you what I mean by that. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, remember you can become a Patreon saint. You can go to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall where you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group. It's all the people that are Patreon saints hanging out there uh, talking about various tangential things. You can anticipate that within that group that people will share their favorite Minerva Tykert, uh paintings after listening to this episode and other sort of interesting things uh, that you might find tangential to the episode, but it's where all the cool kids hang out. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So you mentioned uh, the significance about being able to, even if it didn't work out dating wise, the significance of the Tykert family, I would turn this back to you, Jeff. There, there are a few last names um, I think within the church that come with a certain amount of, if not significance, certainly amount of attention. Uh, you know, if you if you're a member of the church and your last name is, for example, like Hinckley or you're a Monson or you're a McKay or a McConkie or, you know, all of these individuals. And I would lump in that uh, Tykert, because I think that that when you say Tykert, as you described your great grandmother before, you certainly have a vision of who and how that person was. The name is, of course, has carried down through the generations and and, and now there's quite a uh, a number of descendants what what do you think that that carries through uh, throughout the family as being you know the offspring the descendants of of such an amazing kind of person well she has uh, minerva and herman her husband uh have a very large posterity now my my grandparents had 10 children and Whoa. Um, so i have close to 60 first cousins on that side they had over 60 grandkids, but five of them were my siblings. And uh, so so we have a very large family. We still get together for reunions uh, every other year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have uh, probably my best friend in this world, uh, other than Kathy, is, is a cousin I have on that side. 
Um, in terms of the, the legacy that Minerva Teichert left, uh, the most important thing in the world to her was, or the, the most important things were her faith and her family and her art. She, you know, was just merely an expression of her faith in a way. Um, <clears throat> there's a story about how Robert Henry, um, he was the teacher she worked with in New York. She learned to draw in Chicago at the Art Institute of Chicago, which still exists uh, under Vanderpool. But he eventually said to her, you can draw as well as I can now paint. So he sent her off to New York and she studied painting under Robert Henry. That's H-E-N-R-I. Art people will know who that is. If you Google him, you will definitely see where a lot of Minerva's style comes from. And she kind of idolized Henry. Um, she named us one of her sons, Robert Henry Teichert. Hmm. Um, and she copied a lot of elements of his style. But in any case, um, she was offered a scholarship to the Royal Academy in London. And the story goes that she went to Robert Henry and asked for his advice. And he said, has anyone ever painted your great Mormon story? And she said, not to my satisfaction. Hmm. And he said, well, you're the one. Go home and do that. And she said she felt she had been commissioned, really, and that for the remainder of her life, um, her painting was an expression of her faith. In fact, her Book of Mormon paintings, she painted 42 of them uncommissioned, and ultimately those were donated to BYU, but she said she painted those paintings so that he who runs may read. So, so then I have uh, a couple of questions around that, certainly around the uncommissioned portion, and then as we dive into some current events or current-ish events, I guess I should say, you know, we hear about the Manti Temple and the walls being removed in the Manti temple and that temple being changed, which would obviously mean that the, you know, that, that great work uh, of Minerva would be destroyed or certainly not preserved. I would be curious as to your feeling, family's feeling you, Kathy, your feeling around that. And then also when the, when the church announces, Hey, um, and I want to make sure that I at least paraphrase this story, right? There was uh, a church in Wyoming. Uh, that had a bunch of Minerva Teichert paintings, the originals, because that's where she had lived or had donated them to, and the church kept them, but they were to go elsewhere. Maybe we can dive into some of that current-ish event stuff. Well, uh, on the issue of the Manti Temple, um, I, I know a lot of people in my family were were worried about that and and bothered by it. My second cousin, Kim wrote a letter to President Nelson uh, specifically saying, you know, pleading with him not to allow that to happen. And, you know, I've thought sometimes it reminded me a little bit of like when they were going to tear down the Provo Tabernacle to create a parking lot for J.C. Penney in, in Provo. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they thankfully there was enough community uh, protests that they relented on that and said, oh, okay, we're going to leave it standing. And ultimately that was destroyed by fire and they, they still rebuilt it. 
and created a temple out of it. And that building is, you know, really the crown jewel of the city in, in so many ways. And, and I think in a way it's, it's short-sighted for us to, I, I understand, you know, you've got to have progress and all that, but, but I think that would be almost like, you know, tearing up the world room in the Manti temple would be the equivalent in our faith to, in the Catholic faith, you know, painting over Michelangelo's ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. Wow. Um, it's a priceless treasure that you can't ever get back if you, if you destroy it. And uh, so that's my, that was my feeling. And I signed and circulated petitions on it too. Um, but I feel that way, not just about Minerva's stuff, but about all of our, uh, you know, all kinds of things regarding our, our heritage, you know, um, whether it's art, you could talk about CCA Christensen or uh, Jack Christiansen. I mean, there's a, a lot of, of prominent artists, but there's also, um, you know, relics and artifacts that exist in museums and things. And I, I think, and then there's buildings, the old tabernacles and meeting houses uh, in addition to the temples <clears throat> that I believe are monuments to to our pioneer heritage. Mm -hmm. And I believe all of those deserve to be preserved as much as possible. And what a tremendous relief for so many saints when they found out, hey, you know what, they're not going to do that to the Manti Temple and that the Ephraim Temple gets announced sort of, you know, off the off the path of how we normally do temples. And everyone went, ah. did your, you said it was your, Sister, your aunt that wrote the letter, did she get a response? My second cousin. Your second cousin. Did she get a response from President she Nelson? She did, yeah. Oh, I got to know. What did it say? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I'll have to ask her. Secrets. Did, wasn't there several family members that followed suit? Yeah, there were a number of family members that either circulated petitions or wrote letters or things like that. Um, and, you know, there were just a lot of uh, people who loved the arts that wanted that um preserved as well so then turning the attention to the other uh time in most recent history when minerva has kind of been in the news current event ish right i say ish because it's the last couple of years there there was if am i recalling this correctly there was yes. a church that had been donated several originals and and the claim i think was either for the ward or for some family member and 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 the church felt that to not be the case where where it Paraphrase that scenario better for me, and then tell me where that situation is at presently. Well, that's an interesting story, and I don't claim to know all the details. I do know that my great-grandmother painted two very large murals and donated them to the chapel in Cokeville, Wyoming, when it was built. And, you know, normally it, it, in uh, more recent times, the church does not allow uh, artwork to hang inside the chapel. Mm -hmm. um, they they do in the hallways and classrooms and things like that, but but not in the chapel. But they had a special exception for those two large murals in the Cokeville Chapel where she worshipped. My my grandfather, her son, actually built that chapel when he was the bishop. Hmm. Um, and, and we've been having our reunions there every other year. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's okay. the church is the central point for everyone in, in the small town, town. and yeah. so that's where we gather yeah so anyway she she donated those two paintings to be 
to be there. I remember growing up seeing those whenever we whenever we went to visit grandparents or whomever in, in Cokeville. Um, there was also a really large one in the Relief Society room that I was mesmerized by. Beautiful. Do you remember what it was called? The Song of Quetzalcoatl, I believe. Um, I mean, it, it was, took up like the entire wall. Wow. And I believe it was original, right? Yes. Or at least originally was so, original. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the church, uh, I'm trying to remember which department it is. Um, anyway, it's whichever department it is that is responsible for preserving artwork and, and so forth. They came in uh, and basically in the dead of night and took those paintings and replaced them with prints, which a lot of people think are inferior uh, to sure. the originals. Yeah, I mean, there's a texture and a, and a vibrance and a, you know, not necessarily tangible, although that's the word that's coming to my mind, but you can feel sort of a difference from a print. Not to say that a print can't be beautiful, it can't give you the spirit of what the thing is, but they're, it's night and day different from a from original to a print. So they come in and they are like, prints for you, prints here and prints here. Right. And and I mean, there has been a, a bunch of wrangling and dispute about who the owners of those paintings, you know, who the owner of those paintings is. Um, <clears throat> is it the local congregation or is it the church or is there a difference? If they're not going to be in the chapel, do they go back to the family? Um, I understand why the church did what they did. I mean, they they want to properly preserve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were worried that hanging where they were, that they were going to deteriorate. Um, I think it could have been handled in a, in a better way. And, you know, they could have, I mean, I, I'm not claiming to know the solution, but maybe they have people come in and do preservation on them every so often mm -hmm. at the location, or, you know, maybe they, they, uh, they negotiate some other kind of arrangement that allows the heritage of the town and the family and others to be respected along with the need to preserve the paintings, and which her wishes to be honored. Right. And I mean, it was plainly her wish that those be in that chapel. And I mean, they are in the form of the prints, but the, the prints don't quite do justice to the original creations. Well, and even some, some issue just, I think, you know, it, there are errors in, in times where it's just not transparent, where we don't say, hey, we're going to do this. We just do something. And then people go, wait, why didn't we why didn't we say that this is what was going on or, you know, given some sort of warning or or made known to this before the fact, as opposed to, oh, yeah, these are prints. And now it's after the fact and gone. And I would imagine, uh, you know, with such large pieces of art um, and them being originals and being there for their entire existence, a considerable amount of money. So in some way, you know, that although the the paintings still exist and that the church, you know, owns them, like I'm almost feeling a little bit robbed because right. they were there and then they weren't. Yeah, I think there was definitely that feeling. Right. And, you know, I mean, I think the, the church art department felt like the local ward and stake were, didn't have the resources or the know-how to properly preserve the paintings. I, I think maybe there was a way they could have dealt with that without just going in and taking them out unbeknownst to the local congregation. But yeah. um, 
you know, I guess what happens there remains to be seen. I, I am glad that those paintings are still, you know, being preserved and not <laughs> not torn up like they were planning to do with the Manti Temple murals. Right, right. If someone wants to learn more about Minerva, is there a great like uh, biography that exists? Are there writings by particular historians that you would push people towards? Well, uh, Elaine Cannon wrote a biography of her called Minerva, uh-huh. and that's a that's available through Deseret Book. Uh, it's been around a while now, but I, I've read it. Uh, I think it's it's really good. Um, it's Elaine Cannon's own own uh, interpretation, but I think she gets the the facts right, and and even the interpretation. I think she, I, I think Minerva would be would be pleased with it. There's also a book that her daughter Lori Tykert Eastwood published called Letters from Minerva, and it's mostly letters written to her by her mother. Hmm. And so you get a flavor of who she was informally, you know, writing to her daughter about the various events in life, the things that she was involved in. I actually found out from reading one of those letters that my great grandfather, Minerva's husband, actually helped paint the world room in the Manti Temple. My guess is that he was just helping her fill in certain spots. I don't think he was doing anything really artistic, but that was an interesting little bit of information I wouldn't have known. Well, and then we actually toured the home that she basically raised her kids in and painted in. And Mm -hmm. the living room is tiny. And she actually used binoculars backwards to be able to see details from let's see what across the room and also she would roll it up and she'd actually have to paint part of it at a time when they were really big yeah because the murals were often bigger than her than the room she was in wow and so yeah i don't know how she kept track of where she was and kept everything proportional and what but yeah she improvised because she didn't have the money for a formal studio so she just tacked up canvases on her living room wall and when she when she needed more perspective, like Kathy said, she just inverted those binoculars and looked at it like that to make sure it was giving her the effect she wanted. I, I want to ask you guys each a question, then I want to take another break. Um, you know, neither of you are Minerva, and we've spent a lot of time talking about Minerva. Why do you think that um, that people today, members of the church, you know, wh- why why is she more valuable than just your great grandma? Like why 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 is this episode important? Why are is her artwork important? What what is the import of her to today's Latter Day Saint? Well, I'd like to just start with something Jeff has told me that uh, she was asked when uh, she was here on Earth, Grandma, are you going? Are you famous? And she said, No, but I will be someday. Oh, I think she said, I will be after I'm dead. <laughs> oh, yes. Okay. There you go. That's the quote. Uh, so she had a sense of how her work would live beyond her, but it not, she didn't intend it for it to happen during her life. I think in fact, of the year she died, don't quote me on that, but it was around that time anyway, the, a bunch of her paintings were featured in the enzyme 
And I remember my mother telling me, even at the time when I was nine or 10 years old, she said, you know, I think she would have been pleased. It's too bad they didn't do this during her life. Mm. Um, but uh, I I think, you know, I, I speak for myself, but I think a lot of members of my family would probably agree that we understand that although to us, she was a, a relative and someone who loved us and and we loved and and still love she belongs to the whole church in a in a way um because her work is so prominently featured in temples and in books and you know church magazines and manuals and and so i i think we do believe that her heritage is not just for us but it's it's the whole churches and so i think we're proud of it in in that sense i I don't mean pride in the scriptural sense, but just grateful to to have that name and to be associated with it. And, you know, I'm grateful to be that little toddler that she gave a teddy bear to, <laughs> even, even if she did give it to me with two holes in its head. Yeah. Uh, I want to take a break. When we come back, uh, I want to get to know you guys a little bit more and tell people what you do. We've talked all about your great grandma. I think we should turn the, the spotlight on the two of you guys. We'll do that coming back in the third block of the Cultural Hall. BestDJinUtah.com. That is the website. If you would like to hire me to come and to be at your event. Now, uh, I've done weddings and uh, family reunions, and I've had the opportunity to gather with folks just uh, for a party. I have yet to do a funeral, uh, and so I, I don't want to say it with such exuberance, but I'm willing to play the music at a funeral, and I know that some people have really started to turn uh, the passing of someone into a party. Not that we're celebrating that they're gone. No, that's not what I'm saying. Take that back. Come on, Richie. I'm just saying the opportunity to be able to gather and celebrate the life of an individual. This suddenly got really dark, and I didn't mean it to. The point is, if uh, you have an event, an activity that you need music to be played for, why not considering consider rather hiring me uh, you go to best dj in utah.com we have nvidia and amd video cards in stock with complete systems at pclaptops.com here in the third block of the cultural hall uh, as we talk with jeffy jeff jeffy is what i just called you funny <laughs> jeff and kathy tykert although do you ever get a jeffy are you ever a jeffy uh there were women i dated that called me that <laughs> yeah but not your wife, so we will not bring those people up, uh, Jeff and Kathy Teichert. Uh, one of the things that, that I love about you guys is um, you are the example of not giving up hope for finding that partner. Uh, you guys, love in later years uh, is your, well, maybe I shouldn't say your email, but I just did. Uh, and, it, and it is an inspiration, I think, for those of uh, of of the church that have found themselves in a situation where they were married and then weren't, and then maybe married a second time as Kathy alluded to, and then weren't, and then are just like, what is this God? Do you not want me to be married? Do you not want me to be happy? What kind of message do you guys have for people that find themselves into that, you know, single and older, older. And I just say older, like not twenties and, and early thirties, but those older years to be able to find the person that they are meant to be with. Well, our organization is Love in Later Years, and the acronym for that is L-I-L-Y, Lily. So we have Lily Pod, we have Lily Tube, 
We have Lily coaching, Lily everything for all the resources we offer those who are beyond the possibility of a first marriage in their 20s because life and relationships get more complicated after that. So pretty much anyone divorced, widowed, or over 30 and not yet married. Yeah, you just got a lot of amens, right? <laughs> By the way, too. I'll, I'll tell you kind of how that got started. Um, it was a, a year or two after Kathy and I were married. Uh, I had a night where I couldn't sleep. So I came down uh, to my office, the room where I'm broadcasting from now, and I it was 3 a.m. or something, and I was... Um, We've been married maybe two years. M- maybe two. two years. But, yeah. So, so I, anyway, I, I thought it was too heavy to, to be doing legal work at that hour. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Um, that's my day job. And so anyway, I, I was just kind of browsing through my computer, looking at old stuff. And, and I found this book that I had started to write while I was still single about personal development and relationship development for mid-singles. And I remember having gotten to a certain point, I'd written portions of five chapters or something and thinking, I'm really not ready to complete this. I I'm, I'm realized I was still too, too much in that place of kind of bitterness. And, and uh, so I, I shelved it for a while. So that night I, I read, reread what I had written a few years earlier and I thought, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> and so I added some portions to each of those chapters. And the next morning I told Kathy about it, you know, before we ever met, I started writing this book and I shelved it, but I got to looking at it and I, I think it actually has possibilities. And her response was, I want in. Because yeah. um, we have both felt like the most underserved demographic in the church is mid singles. It is. And uh, so, I mean, there, there are all kinds of great people, you know, whether you want to talk about uh, John, by the way, or Richard and Linda Iyer that are writing to married couples or the youth, or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of, of great authors and speakers that are serving those demographics very few serving divorced, widowed, and later married, or not yet married beyond 30. So we believed that that was sort of a calling for us, that we we wanted to write the book that we wished we would have had when we were newly minted mid-singles and, and try to help people to speed along their journey of of healing and finding happiness. Um, in healthy relationships. And that was in the spring of 2020. And the entire 20 chapter book basically just flowed out of us in about four months. Wow. And then it took a little over a year to get it polished, perfected. Uh, We had it beta read, read by, oh gosh, at least a dozen of our friends. And we got some really good feedback. We made some changes. We got it formatted and and published in November of 2021. So it's been out about nine months. Yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, and then we started Love in Later Years basically as a vehicle to share the book and what we learned from, from that, uh, from writing it and from our all our experiences that came before writing it 
uh, in a in a forum. We have a Facebook page, a Facebook group, Instagram, TikTok, all this stuff. Sure. Ma- mainly our Facebook group. We've got over sixteen hundred members already, and wow. it's growing fast. And, and we'll leave a link in the show notes so that people can find uh, you guys in yeah. all of those places. That's great. Uh, I always think that people tend to learn from mistakes. So I'm going to ask you guys to be good and vulnerable here for just a minute. No problem. Uh, uh, <laughs> we love vulnerability. We love <laughs> we love opening ourselves up to people that we've only known for 45 minutes. That sounds awesome. Great. Uh, the, the question that I would have is what, uh, and this is to each of you, so you don't get to pawn it off on Kathy, Jeff. You have to share your own too. But in the yeah. time that you were single, whenever that was, you know, uh, it can be between marriages, whatever the, you know, just in general single, what do you think the biggest mistake or thing that you would go, if you could go back and change? And, and I would ask you to please not give me the, I wouldn't change anything because I wouldn't be the person who I am today (laughs) answer of changing. I'm, I I would ask you to look at the, a thing that you go, man, I could have maybe done this better or done this different or what would you change you want to go first or should ladies I? first ladies first jeff go ahead ladies if you... first no chance to think okay exactly <laughs> all right well you know we do talk a lot about vulnerable stuff in our book and in our articles i mean because we think that's what helps people to learn right is mm-hmm. to be able to share our stories and uh I, if i could go back I would want to understand just how codependent I was after my first marriage and do more about it before diving into a new relationship because I, I was not ready. I needed a lot more healing, but with the way it worked out, I did end up doing some healing. So, you know, I don't regret either marriage or divorce because I know it was part of my path. That's something I learned very strongly as through a revelation in the temple that um so i don't regret it but i really would like to have known more about codependency what it is and how much i was in that space and be able to heal more quickly knowing then what i know now and i also would have liked to have healed faster and had less cognitive distortions in my mind causing myself a lot more pain than was necessary. I don't think you can take the sting out of divorce any more than you can take the sting out of life or death without taking the love out of marriage and the love out of life, right? Mm -hmm. Just Mm -hmm. like what President Nelson has said, but but there are things we now know. Um, we went on to get um, our coaching certificate certification so that we, um, and we also both have degrees in family and human development. So we both went into marriage with lots of tools and thinking that, you know, we could conquer all with all yeah. our knowledge. Yeah. We got, a, we got this, we got this marriage. Right. Thing. Right. So, I mean, we're able to use it now um, with combined with the coaching certification to help others heal faster, mm-hmm. but we've learned, I guess, how not to go about the healing process because it just ended up prolonging it and making it harder when we were fighting against the reality of our situations. Yeah. And there are two things I kind of want to say in answer to your question. One is um, there was something I learned while I was going through my, my divorce from my kid's mom. Uh, A friend of mine recommended the book real love by Dr. Greg bear. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ordered it. 
off of Amazon, I think. But anyway, it came in the mail and I thought, no, this isn't something I would have picked. You know, I think there might have been a flower on the cover. Anyway, <laughs> um, I, I thought it wasn't something I would have chosen, but I I respected the friend that recommended it. So I started reading and it was honestly really painful. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it was I've, I've heard Brene Brown talk about a year of therapy she had. And she said, uh, I fought vulnerability the whole time. I lost, but I probably won my life back. Mm. Well, Dr. Greg Bear's book says essentially that love is not real unless it's freely given. And so anything I do to force, manipulate, trick, you know, uh, guilt, whatever, is imitation love. And Mm. deep down, I know it. You know, if I... If I manipulate Kathy into doing something I want, it might be temporarily validating because I got what I wanted in the moment. But deep down, I can't really feel loved if I'm insisting that another person be what I want her to be or do what I want her to do. And, you know, I think uh, prior to reading the book, I, I thought a lot about covenants and you know did she break her covenants with me by breaking our marriage you know deciding she wanted a divorce Mm -hmm. there was a lot of judgment in the way that I was looking at my former wife's behavior yeah and and the book basically told me um you can't do it like that you have to honor he doesn't use the word agency. He calls it the law of choice, but it's the same thing. Yeah. And he basically says, you have to honor agency every time, all the time. And when you don't, you know, you're stepping out of real love and into imitation love, which is just a transaction. And anyway, ultimately I lost the fight against this book too, based on two ideas. One, that love not freely given is not real. The other one was about vulnerability. And it basically, he he basically says, you have to be able to tell the truth about yourself. Because if you're putting on a show for people, then they may fall in love with the mask you're wearing, but deep down, you're not going to feel loved. Mm. And because you're not letting people love that deepest part of yourself. And and so I ultimately came to believe that. And it's it's one of the things that I feel like is very different in my marriage with Kathy than in my first marriage. So the so one thing that I would do different is um, I would be more vulnerable and I would be less insistent and, you know, wanting to make sure that my wife was doing what she was supposed to and, you know, um, pulling out the covenant card, didn't you covenant for this or that? Or, yeah. you know, it would be loving her and allowing her to be who she wanted to be. That doesn't necessarily mean our marriage would have survived. I, I can't possibly answer that. Sure. But, uh, but I think that would have been a more charactered way to have dealt with the issues in that marriage. So that's one thing. I would say parenthetically, just as a point of interest, uh, I became friends with the author of the book, Dr. Greg Bear, like 11 years after I read his book. 
and uh, and fighting with it all the way fighting through. with it all the way through. <laughs> Um, but I got a chance to to tell him, you know, thanks for writing it because it changed my life. And we interviewed him on our podcast as well. Um, and it was a really cool experience. You don't always get to meet your heroes, but uh, and sometimes when you do, they disappoint. But yes, he didn't disappoint. And our first grandbaby was born the same day. I'm mean, not the same day it came out, but the same day we happened to interview him about oh. time. So that was kind of kind of fun. So anyway, that's one thing I would do different, uh, the thing I just mentioned. And then the other thing is, and, and this is pretty vulnerable, but uh, I, during the time I was going through my divorce and afterward, a period of about four years, <clears throat> I walked around all day feeling like I'd been kicked in the stomach. Mm-hmm. I, I woke up to that feeling every morning. I carried it around all day. I took it to bed every night. Um, <clears throat> and ultimately, uh, it was just relentless. I thought it would never go away. Um, I believe, well, first of all, there is scientific evidence now. They, they've looked at uh, functional MRIs for people going through an unwanted divorce, and their brains light up in exactly the same areas as people enduring physical pain. Hmm. Uh, now, that isn't true of any other emotion. It's not true of anger or sadness or depression or go down the list of of other emotions, they're painful, but they're not necessarily physically painful. And the feeling of being rejected is physically painful. Now, I think we can explain that, you know, from the survival mechanism. If you get, you know, in primitive times, if you got kicked out by your tribe, rejected by your tribe, you might be in serious danger. Uh, and I think we still have that kind of inborn sense. I mean, when you're a newborn baby, you survive because somebody loves you. Mm-hmm. And so I think being rejected by the person you trusted to love you the most is probably the most painful thing we go through, at least emotionally in this life. We sure. call it the ache. <laughs> yeah, we call it the ache. Well, I think that the ache is prolonged and exacerbated when we have certain thoughts, like I've lost my exaltation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and not it's, supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to turn out like this. Uh, my life was supposed to be better than this. Well, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to be thrown back into single life at age 42 or whatever. I served a mission. I deserved to have my marriage work out. Yeah, I checked the boxes. I did the things. I had a confirmation when I prayed in the temple as to whether or not this should be my partner. And I got the affirmative. Right. How did I get here? Yeah. 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 And I mean, I think in a way, and I, I've I've searched for a way to describe this for a long time, but I believe in the church we have a culture that, of course, is very pro-marriage, and, and we believe in that, too. But uh, I think that there is a cultural sense that you, if you're in the church and you did the best you could and you still ended up divorced, we can be comfortable with the idea that you make the best of a bad situation, as long as it's still a bad situation. Mm-hmm. And I think people are less comfortable with the idea that my life is better now because I went through that divorce. Yeah. And and uh, yet it's true for me. I mean, I did get rid of the ache 
I lost my, I, I also went through a brief second marriage. Uh, I lost my corporate job about the same time as I separated from my second wife. Um, a whole bunch of things in my life. If you looked at the Holmes-Rahi stress index, I had a high enough number to crash a computer. Wow. Um, but as I look at it, those things seemed like tragedies at the time. Mm -hmm. But if I hadn't gone through that divorce, I wouldn't have Kathy. And mm -hmm. Kathy's amazing. If I hadn't lost that corporate job, I'd probably still be running oil and gas titles out in East Texas. Mm -hmm. And instead, I advised the governor and the attorney general on constitutional law issues here in Utah, which is something that I feel much more passionately about. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've got other good things in the works. Don't, I won't go into all of it, but uh, we wouldn't have love in later years either. So. Um, and that's not and nothing we thought of before we got together. That happened two years into marriage and it just makes sense. It, it really works for us. And it does feel kind of like what Minerva talked about when somebody said, well, no one's painted your Mormon story. And then all of a sudden, ding, ding, ding. That's my job. Mm -hmm. That's that's our work. So the other thing that I would do differently along these lines is I would have, if I knowing what I know now, I would have kept perspective about the setbacks, the things that looked like tragedies mm -hmm. that ultimately turned out to be tender mercies. And and we talk a lot about radical acceptance. Uh, an example of that that's outside the realm of relationships is I, I went in, uh, I had a stomachache for a year and I went into doctor after doctor trying to figure out what was wrong and ultimately got diagnosed with celiac disease. Hmm. And when I'm in there talking to my doctor, she tells me about celiac disease. I had never even heard of it. She says, you have an issue with gluten. What's gluten? Yeah. You know, and basically she said, well, you can't eat anything that has any wheat products in it. And I said, okay, how long? And she said, for the rest of your life. Yeah. Really, I can't. There's no cure for this. Nope. You just have to abstain from gluten for the rest of your life. Hmm. Well, I walked out of that doctor's office and never knowingly ate gluten again, uh, at least where it was in the rest. And he didn't join support groups. He just radically accepted in that moment, no gluten ever again. Mm -hmm. Done. And it basically was this sense that, okay, like a diabetic may have to carry their insulin around. Sure. They may have to not partake of the pie on Father's Day when everybody else is eating. For me, my, you know, my celiac disease was like my own diabetes and it required its own management. And yeah, maybe it's not fair that I have to do that and everybody else doesn't, or a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. But it isn't about fair. It's about <laughs> what it's going to take to keep me well. Yeah. And I think uh, so. So basically, it was radical acceptance. All right. This is my new reality. And we wish divorce could be that easy. It's yeah. it, There's a lot more emotion wrapped up in it. It's probably never going to be that easy. But I think there's the, there's a parallel in the, right. that radical acceptance will help us get on board with going a new direction a lot faster mm -hmm. than fighting against it and kicking and screaming and believing it's not fair or it's not right or like it just shouldn't be this way yeah for as right. long as we're there we're stuck 
So the thing I would do different is I would accept that this was my path yeah. much, much earlier. And then believe as it, as uh, Paul said in Romans 8, all things work together for them, work together for good to the, for them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And we really believe that, that ultimately God will not do anything to us that is not an act of love. That doesn't mean we won't suffer and have trials, but I think if we have a perspective that God's in charge, that our path is our path, uh, that even the mistakes we make, God probably foresaw that, uh, you know, certainly foresaw that, and that he still has great things for us uh, if we, uh, you know, if we love him and are called according to his purpose. And that we don't have to hang so much judgment on our life experience that mm -hmm. is part of our path because it is. It's right. part of our path. Yeah. So it would be acceptance and then not hanging judgments so much on my situation. Yeah. Uh, be willing to believe that things were going to work out well in the future. Because they have. Look to each other, yeah. right? That's, that is a perfect Absolutely. example of how that has. And you probably in a million years, in a million ways, could not have envisioned who you are now, who you two are as a couple and and the relationship that you have and the things that you've but been able to build. It did build. take some envisioning on our own, like like picturing what we wanted to create with a partner mm -hmm. and then seeing it come to life is really exciting. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it did take us a lot, a lot of, it took a lot of faith. I th think for all those singles out there that don't have it figured out yet. I mean, we were in that place for a long time and yeah. it takes effort um, to work on yourself and show up differently in a next relationship and to do so on purpose and intentionally. Yeah. There are uh, three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. I will ask those of you two right now. The first question is, is do you have a calling? And if so, what is it? Well, uh, we don't have a calling right now. We're willing, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> that won't last very long, out. man. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, so basically I think maybe the reason we haven't been called is because we're just so busy doing this other calling that we felt mm -hmm. called to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why we haven't been picked up, but it's all right. We're really busy. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Ooh, mm. I like that question. Um, you know, I heard uh, a friend of ours who just recently got married, but he was a mid-single for a long time say that just like there's a general relief society board in the church or a general young men's presidency he said he thought there should be a general mid-singles presidency and so if i could create one it would be that because i i think we do need something like that for sure yeah what do you think kathy the same thing like only i, I don't really care what it's called <laughs> i would love for the church to find out who we are uh -huh. and call us to something that allows us to serve at a, a much bigger level. Like, because we just, we want to reach as many people out there who are really struggling and suffering as we were and floundering and not really knowing how to move forward with their lives and, and be able to support them. Yeah. I would also say just throwing it out there. I, I really loved my mission president, and I've always thought it would be cool to have that kind of influence on 
young people. Now, I, I don't have any illusions that I'll ever be one, <laughs> but uh, I I think that in another life, another if things had gone differently, that that would have been a cool thing to experience. Yeah. The final question that we ask everyone, we ask you to interpret for yourselves whatever you think the question might be getting at. Uh, the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Is that me first? Oh, if you want. No time to think. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I really appreciate how I've come to understand that truth comes from many sources and that when it's truth, it harmonizes with other truths we know. And I believe that my first testimony was of agency. And of course, I learned that more and more, the, you know, the more experience I've had in this life that because we all have our agency <clears throat> and we interact with each other and we bump up against each other, that we have the power to get frustrated and upset by it or we also have the ability to honor it in others and then use our agency to choose intentionally and actively choose light and goodness in our, within our own selves, like to be able to counter any negative voices out there with a positive one within ourselves that is more affirming of our divine nature. You should, have gone, you should have gone first, Jeff. <laughs> well, along the subject of divine nature. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think every it, it almost goes without saying in this type of conversation that the central core of, of all of our revealed religion is the atonement of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, but the appendage of it that I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of years, or one of them, is when I was when I was a mid-single, I felt really powerless. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it seemed like as soon as I would get one problem solved, one bill caught up, there would be two more problems behind it, even bigger. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like I could never get ahead of it. And I was, I was completely discouraged. I had anxiety so bad, I couldn't even open my mouth. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of people, a lot of other mid-singles feel that and maybe feel like they're the only ones. Mm -hmm. But I remember it was a big revelation to me that, wait a minute, I was anointed to become a king and a priest and women, queens and priestesses. And you think about kingly power or queenly power. Well, we're promised that that we can become that. And... So I started invoking that in prayer and and uh, relying on it. Okay, well, I'm anointed to become a king and a priest. What does that mean in this situation? How would a king respond to this as opposed to somebody who's bitter or, mm -hmm. you know, and to to learn to strengthen my inner core uh, by relying on on that covenant that I made and the promise that I was given and. I tell that, I, I talk to mid-singles about that all the time. You're anointed to become a king. You're looking for your queen. You're anointed to become a queen. You're looking for your king. And when you do that, you're preparing to, to be a ruler. And kind of like the Lord said in the New Testament, 
you have been faithful over a few things. Now I will make you ruler over many things. Yeah. And I think ultimately that's our destiny. Well, and our book, Intentional Courtship, really goes a lot into becoming our best and highest self, including that divine self, um, all the way from, okay, so you've lost in relationships up until now. It really stinks. How do we heal from that? Like, I mean, and and that's um, where I think sometimes people just think, oh, if I'm not ready to date, intentional courtship isn't for me. I mean, this is even maybe people who they're... Uh, they're maybe even not quite ready to be ready, get ready to date, you know, like it, it all starts from that place of healing, right. Um, to be able to, um, move forward with your life after a big loss and figure out how to forgive, how to let go, how to transition and how to have faith, even when we can't see the end from the beginning or the whys in the process. Yeah. If I could also, I just want to quote a passage from our book. Just a um, little short one. Intentional courtship. This is a quote from President John Taylor. Do you feel as though some dreadful calamity has happened to you? And I think many mid-singles feel that way. And then he gives an interesting admonition. Have you forgot who you are and what your object is? Have you forgot that you profess to be saints of the Most High God clothed upon with the holy priesthood? Have you forgot that you are aiming to become kings and priests unto the Lord and queens and priestesses to him? And I think sometimes when we're in the middle of a calamity, we think we do forget who we are and that a lot of that sense of weakness comes from forgetting who we are and what we're anointed to become And I think it's an empowering thought, you know, to think that is what the Lord's going to make of me ultimately. Well, Jeff and Kathy Tyker, uh, a link to all of their Facebook groups and their book and everything that they have. Plus, we'll leave a link to the couple of books that we mentioned about Minerva in the previous blocks uh, so people can check that out. Um, We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, (laughs) that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Chris at Alpine Lakes Travel, Brother Brent, Miracles, I Told You So, Rick McGee, Debbie Wanless, and Chocolate Cake Bites Podcast. We'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back row. We 